Whoopi Goldberg. You met Whoopi Goldberg. Yes. Can I go back yeah. on and ask about meeting oh. Whoopi Goldberg? Oh my gosh. She's everything. This can be a little outtake, couldn't it, at the yeah. end? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Simon and this is Just About Coping. Today's guest is Phil Apoku-Jimmer, often known as Miss Lady Phil. Phil is the director of the Kaleidoscope Trust, previously a trade unionist and founder of UK Black Pride. I've known Phil for several years now. We served on the board at Stonewall and I absolutely adore the work that she does, her attitude and outlook on life um, and the way that she uh, just really tackles equality and diversity. We talked about racism, we talked about structural inequality, we talked about healing, we talked about pain, we talked about uh, optimism and hope. I love talking to Phil and I hope that you go away from this podcast as inspired as I have talking to her. So, uh, really pleased to be here at the Kaleidoscope offices today with Phil, Lady Phil, as many of you will uh, know her, um, a long-time trade unionist, uh, equality activist, um, amazing all-round person and very recently director of the Kaleidoscope. So thank you for having me. No, thank you very much. So as you know, this is the Just About Coping podcast. And what we want to do on this is talk to people about mental health, about well-being, about looking after themselves, about what a brighter, kinder world might look like. And that's why I thought I would like to come to you, because in my view, you are one of the kindest people I know. You are um, very good at... Um, thinking about and helping others, but also taking care of yourself and being proud of who you are. So, yeah, I, how, does wow. that sound? Does that sound like you? Well, I want it to sound like me. That's really, really lovely. I, I think it doesn't take much just to be kind, just to be respectful, just to try and understand people are different and embrace those differences. It doesn't take much to say please, thank you. Um, it's a lot harder to say sorry, so prevention rather than cure. Um, but yeah, I like to live my life by being kind because it gets me further than, you know, being mean and being spiteful. You know, you don't know <clears throat> how people's days are affected or, you know, or what they're going through. So just being kind to somebody makes a difference and the thing which makes that even more powerful for me when I think about you is sometimes I see on social media that you have been profiled as a black woman you know on the airport or mm -hmm. experience racism on a bus or with your daughter and I just think continuing to be kind in the face of those sorts of things takes some energy yeah, I'm going to be real. I'm a human being, so I, I get angry like the best of us. I, you know, I cry. I, every now and again, a colourful language will come from my mouth. But because of the world we live in, I can either let it eat me up or I can be in control of it. And that's so easy for someone who's not going through many different challenges to say. But... I've, I think I've, I've primed myself on what are the things that could possibly trigger me off? What are the things that I'm trying to cope with on a daily basis? What do I know that will happen when I get on this tube and someone just mansplains or pushes my elbow off or, you know, chants a nasty N-word or a C-word? How am I going to deal with that? So I think I do a lot of mental preparation even before I leave the house. Interesting and of course that in itself takes um, a lot of a lot of energy mm -hmm. but is a form of protection yeah, yeah. yeah a, a, as well. Um, I guess one of the things that I really learned from you and one of the reasons that I think that you are so kind is the way that you listen and the way that you learn so to just think about you know that sense of talking over people it is, is, you know, goes against everything that I understand 
uh, about you and just be interested in in your sense about what you're doing when you're when you're listening when you're waiting for for you know for the time to speak and taking platforms but also listening and amplifying others mm. you know what i've learned is that when we're doing the work that we do whether we're activists or just run of the mill every day being a mother being a friend being an ally we've got to take time out and stop talking when somebody else is talking but when i'm listening i'm really listening and taking on board what someone's saying i'm trying to gauge what sort of feelings they're feeling um and i'm a natural empath so i pick up on people's emotions and i kind of digest them and want to just give everyone a big hug um but yeah, I stop. I stop and really genuinely listen so that if there's any way I can find support to give them, if there's any w words of comfort or reassurance or not to validate people because I don't think people should need validating, but if there's any way just to say, you know, you are good enough and in fact, you're brilliant. I think you're awesome. I'm going to pick that up when I'm listening to them, when I actually stop talking. Um, I've noticed when I talk over people in the past, I have done so. You're not really hearing what they're saying. You're hearing your own voice and then you're interpreting what they say and can get into an argument. It can get into a disagreement. So, yeah, listening is important. Yeah, really, really important. I always remember um, someone saying, uh, if you talk over me, you don't want to hear what I've got to say and you Absolutely. believe that what you've got to say is more important. Absolutely. I mean, we know this from spaces we've shared. There are some people who do like the sound of their own voice, but then it's all about them. And they can't really call themselves an ally. They can't be a supporter. They can't amplify your cause with permission, of course, because they've not heard you. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's not just about hearing, it's about seeing. When you can stop and listen, it means you can also see somebody. Yeah. You yeah. know, being in that still moment and just hearing somebody, hearing your child, hearing your friend, hearing somebody who, you know, is trying to express that they're in pain or that they're, they've gone for a really bad breakup or they're having such financial difficulties that they don't know where to turn. You're not going to hear that if you're speaking over them. You're not going to hear that if you've turned ar around and you're focusing on 20 million different other things. But I think that's what can be hard because we're all dealing with so many different life challenges that when do you really find the time to stop when you're going through an enormous amount of, you know, I won't swear, BS, for want of a better word, to give somebody else some time. Go on, say it, otherwise we're going to have to put it in the notes. Some people won't oh, know what right. BS is. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel bad saying it. Yeah, but yes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. And I think, you know, I'm not even talking about young people. You know, it's like... This year at UK Black Pride, we saw the most amount of young queer people of colour in the one space in Haggerston Park. And what are we doing for our next generation? The ones who are having to think about where their next money's coming from, the issues around homelessness and youth poverty, you know, a lack of jobs or a lack of respect that they get ones who, you know young people who have been ostracized and marginalized from their homes because of their sexual orientation that is enough to put anybody in a real soul destroying dark place mm -hmm. so for me i like to take time to listen to them mm -hmm. and find out ways of how we can work on this together um which is powerful isn't it just as you're talking it's sort of the fundamental of a mentally healthy society it has to be about the ability to listen to each other and in a world that increasingly appears polarized mm -hmm. uh, yeah that's perhaps you know something we should all just take you know a few moments Absolutely. for if you think about uh, the next generation 
-hmm. and the fact that you know everybody thinks that the generation after them uh or not everybody lots of people seem to think the generation after them you know are, are less moral are less able are less competent i don't agree with that just to be really mm -hmm. um, really clear um what do you think why do you think as a society we sometimes struggle to cheerlead the next generation rather than um, demonise them, which appears to happen so often? There's a lack of respect. I think that there's missing conversations, this intergenerational conversation that is needed with the next generation um, is missing. You know, I have a 24-year-old daughter and I tell you what, I... I love hearing how she just navigates social media, what comes up, listening to her about, you know, her dreams, her needs, her aspirations. But if I wasn't there, who is listening to that? You know, she's seen as, regardless of whether she's LGBT plus or not, she's seen as othered. And young people are, you know, my, my mum has this saying, and I've been saying it to everyone, you know, to translate it, it's, you don't inherit this land from your parents, you borrow it from the next generation. Mm. You know, and when we talk about standing on the shoulders of giants, people have paved the way for us to be here. Our ancestors have made that room, have sacrificed so much, but now there's something missing. There's a disconnect. We're not thinking about what was before. We're just thinking about ourselves in the here and now. And that could be for a number of different reasons, whether it's, you know, socioeconomic status, where you are, what you want, the people that you mix with, um, you know, what you have access to and what you don't. Mm. And I think that we're, we're struggling and I can only speak about the UK context right now, but we're struggling. So everyone has mental health, but it's when it becomes poor and ill mental health that it becomes a problem because then they don't want to speak about it. Mm -hmm. So we've had some, and I, I don't mean to digress, but we've had some amazing people doing some work around mental health, poor and ill mental health, like yourself, Simon, Alex Leon, Kaysa Rose. There's been some people doing some great stuff, but I I think we're not usualizing the conversation enough. Mm. And I use the word usualizing as opposed to normalizing mm -hmm. because I don't know what normal looks like. Yeah. And I've never heard the word usualizing before, so talk to me about usualizing. I guess what it means, yeah. but what does it mean to you? So I was at a conference and I, I, I said to everyone, we need to normalise the fact that we are here in this space. And um, a young woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I really don't like that word, normalising, because she said, can you tell me what is normal? And I'm like, I can't tell you what is normal because normal doesn't exist mm. in in an everyday sense. She said, well, why don't you consider using the word usualizing? Mm -hmm. Because it should be usual to talk about things. It should be usual to occupy space. It should be usual for us as women to be prominent. So I'm like, yeah, I like that. So I use the word usualizing as opposed to normalizing. I think it's definitely one for the uh, vocabulary. So thank See? you. <laughs> um, can you just talk to us a bit about, you talked about the, the places we work, the pl things we do. Just mm. talk to me a bit about your last decade of, of oh. work and, and pleasure and the, the links, you know, the boundaries between the two, given how much of your pleasure is work related in the sort of activism sense. Right. Oh, my gosh. What a big question. I think the last decade, you know, I've. I've given myself, you know, like when people say, oh, I've given myself to Christ, you know, and I, I've given myself to the community for the last, what, 20 years because, this is going to sound really corny, but I believe what my purpose is, <clears throat> excuse me, my purpose is there's a calling and that calling is really about making sure we can improve our everyday lives whether it's here in this country or whether it's abroad looking at decriminalization over you know lgbt people not being able to live their lives 
or be their truest self or to access jobs because of their sexual orientation. But in the last 10 years, I would really say that there's been such a focus on the growth and sustainability of UK Black Pride. And, you know, for some of your listeners that don't know what UK Black Pride mm-hmm. is, it's a it's an organisation that was set up to really look at the needs and aspirations of black or BAME, which is black, Asian, minority, ethnic, or POC, which is people of colour, um, within the UK um, who are connected to the diaspora, whether they're uh, you know, African, Caribbean, Asian, Latin American, indigenous population, it, who happen to be queer or happen to be LGBT, it's about not just celebrating who we are, but really finding ways to not just challenge the homophobia, biophobia, transphobia, but to look at things from an intersectional lens, which focuses on the structural and systemic racism, to focus on Islamophobia, all the forms of discriminations that touch their lives in so many different ways. It's to foster great links and ensure that society is open for them to have their room, have their space. And we're very much part of the wider pride movement, which I'm sure you're probably going to ask me a question about that. But we're really part of the the wider pride movement. And it's that's probably been my cause in making sure that that space exists where people can find their tribe and find their home and find their family. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to ask you about the wider pride movement, actually, because I think uh, Thank you. Uh, there's two two things which I'm I'm keen for everybody to be clear that when you said that's your cause, it's what you've done in your spare time. And we'll talk yeah. a bit about the trade union movement yeah. in a moment. Um, but just describe the first UK Black Pride oh, and then describe... Wow. 2019 Black Pride. So 2005 UK Black Pride, <clears throat> South End on Sea, Shrewsbury Ness, 200 people, marquee music, a jerk pan, which was jerking chicken and the rum punch, dominoes, we're by the sea. And these 200 people were just in a space which was by us and for us. Um, it was amazing, actually. You were making me reminisce on a, on a period where we thought we would never have a pride in this country that lent itself to looking at our difference, to embracing all the unique things about black and POC people in this country who happen to be LGBT. Um, We had a day full of activities. It was things around, you know, a dance competition. It was just a space to feel proud of who you are. And that event, my gosh, it it cost £488.27p. And I remember that because 27p was hard to find. (laughs) Um, And, you know, fast forward to... 2019, Haggerston Park, and you know, there's been a whole history of how we've got from South End to Haggerston Park. 2019, we had 10,000 people at Haggerston Park. Now I'm feeling quite emotional. Um, we had 10,000 people in Haggerston Park, where <clears throat> it was. It was, yeah, by us and for us. It was our pride. It was our movements. You can see what's been created over the years. Sponsors who supported, you know, massive shout out to Stonewall, who have been absolutely key and instrumental in helping us look at how we grow um, without the dynamics that play out of power and privilege. others that have just got involved, grassroots organisations, human rights organisations, you know, sexual health providers, who are just all there in that space. Corporates as well, which are looking to diversify or provide internships or jobs for 
you know, queer people of colour, black people, LGBT people. And the event now costs well over 100k, but it's a free event. And it's an event which has always maintained its political edge. And I don't mean party politics. I mean, you know, how we are treated, you know, our beings, but just by virtue of being black, just by virtue of being LGBT plus, our beings are political. Um, yeah, it's... It's always put people first, so it's about people over profit. Mm -hmm. And our volunteers who come out year after year after year, Simon being one of them, they, they make it happen. And if any UK Black Pride volunteers are listening, you don't have the advantage I do of seeing the pride on Phil's face oh, as she's uh, as she's talking. Um, but there is pure uh, yeah. pride and, and, and gratitude. And love. And love. Absolutely. And love. Yeah. Um, talk to me a bit about the trade union movement at the same time. You were obviously oh, at, yes. uh, equality and diversity. I was head of equality and inclusion. And before that, I was head of political campaigns and equality. At PCS. As PCS, Public and Commercial Services Union, which is the largest civil service trade union. So it meant that the members we represent were connected or worked in Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Defence, HMRC, DWP, all of central government, not local government. Yeah. Yeah. And so whilst your, um, yeah, your, as you say, your calling, your passion for the last 15, 14 years or so has been yeah. UK Black Pride, clearly the wider um, uh, agenda around equality and ensuring that everybody uh, can succeed has been yeah, the, the, the other side of, yeah. your, of your, your calling. But um, I'd just be interested if you can think about some of the areas where you think we have made progress around equality at, at work and some of the areas where you think still got to go because it seems to me and we'll talk a bit more about this later that you you can't have well-being at work unless yeah. you've got equality you can't have true well-being at work yeah. unless you've got true equality so just be interested to think a bit about you know equality at work and where you think gains have been made and where they yeah. haven't and I should say you know the trade union has been a big part of my life and also my parents you know when they first came to this country so I don't want anyone at PCS to think gosh she's written us off already <laughs> um you know I think the trade union have been absolutely key in the the gains that we've made you know they brought us the weekends they're looking at fighting against the zero hours contracts which are so discriminatory and um, you know have people working all hours one minute they have a job next minute they don't the exploitative nature of some bad employers that you know first in you know last in first out the door based on disability discriminating against people and not providing reasonable adjustments you know, if it wasn't for the trade unions and the representation that people have in taking things to whether it's an employment um, tribunal or just putting in a grievance to explain the challenges that they face based on poor policies in the workplace, um, yeah, we would be really stuck. Mm. You know, and of course things have changed for trade unions, but um, they've been... They've been brilliant. So if I say the gains that have been made, we've only got to look at the 2010 Act, the Equality Act. So most people don't always know how that came into force. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with the death, the horrible murder of Stephen Lawrence, mm -hmm. Stephen Lawrence was murdered in South East London um, some 23, it'd be 24 years now. Um, what happened is that his family lodged a, a, an appeal, they wrote to everyone that they possibly could, and there was a report that was written by um, Dr McPherson, the mm. McPherson report, and that report highlighted institutionalised racism within the Metropolitan Police Service. So with that came a number of actions that had to be taken forward, looking at 
you know, whether it's goods and services, whether it's, you know, the discrimination that has been widely felt by black people or people of ethnic minority. And really, the Equality Act was born out of those recommendations that came out of the McPherson report. Mm. Um, so we benefit from equality legislation that protects us in the workplace based on protected characteristics, um, you know, Remember, I, I said goods and services, but as LGBT people, we can go to a hotel and ask for a shared bed without feeling that we're going to be judged or that we're going to be turned away. So, yeah, the Equality Act was a big landmark for us. Mm. And, you know, you can use that in the workplace. And again, trade unions were very much behind the Stephen Lawrence campaign, were very much behind responding to government consultation about what needed to go in that Equality Act 2010. Mm. Yeah, that's the biggest one that I could think yeah. of because there's so many different gains that we, we have made. Yeah. You know, yeah, we could talk about equal marriage, we could talk about, oh, the change in the sex sexual relations act um race relations but the e equality act 2010 forms most of that yeah and and obviously we have made enormous gains as you say but structural inequalities still you know mm -hmm. everyday reality for people that are born out in in um all sorts of of different different ways um just be interested if you could um, talk to me a bit about Structural inequality and mental health. You know, structural inequality and well-being, maybe. Yeah, because mm -hmm. sometimes when you say mental health, people think, "But I'm not an expert." But you, yeah. yeah, what you know and understand about structural inequalities, well-being, a sense of self. So I think there's a question though: How many people get to access services which will allow them to look at some healing? of themselves, how many people get to access services where they can sit down with a therapist once a week? You know, if though if there are barriers to that, then that's a structural problem. If there are finances attached to the services that you can access, then that within itself is gonna be a problem and people are not gonna be able to find or have resources that allow them to navigate this world which can be ever so painful, ever so trying, ever so challenging. I think some of those structural inequalities that I may have seen around accessing services around well-being and health-related matters have by and large hit ethnic minority people. I mean, I hate the word minority and I hate the word ethnic, but we're the ethnic majority, I should say, but has hit those groups of people and maybe because reporting or going to a doctor when you're from an African or Caribbean or Asian background to say to them, can you signpost me somewhere because I'm really feeling suicidal or I'm feeling that I just can't get up in the morning. I think there are different layers and barriers that are within our families, within our culture, where we don't talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And the moment you don't talk about it, you're not usualizing it. Yeah. If you don't usualize it, then it's never spoken about and you just carry on going through your daily rigmarole of, I'm just gonna cope. Yeah. And sometimes just coping is not good enough. And you use the word healing, mm. and, and and I think it's a yeah a really powerful um, word which we often don't talk about healing. We don't talk about recovery mm. um, in ways which are usual that yeah. are usualized. Just talk to me a bit about when you when you talk about healing. What's that mean for you? Healing means a lot of different things. You know, to get a sense of being good with you, it may take having to forgive something that happened in the past in order for you to heal and move forward. Healing may mean talking, may mean meditating, 
may mean sharing space with those who have got a shared commonality with you that may have been through similar things that you can break bread and just hold court about how you move past something. But my specific healing has been, you know, I I was in a very long-standing relationship. Um, and as I mentioned, I have a daughter. And there was some, there was abuse there. And this was a time before I came out. And that abuse was toxic. That abuse was vile. That abuse was awful. And you carry those things with you mm. until you find a way of letting it go. Not necessarily forget, forgetting about it because it shapes who you are depending on what stage you're at in your life. So for nine years, I carried around, <clears throat> I, I would say an anger and a, and a hatred. Um, but I brought this person to a table and we talked and I was able to say, you know, I don't hate you anymore because I want to move on with my life and mm. I'm going to forgive you. I tell you, I, I cried for about an hour just because I said that I'm going to forgive you for every punch, every slap, every kick. I felt liberated. Mm. But I was at a stage and it took nine years to get there. Yeah. I felt that that was my healing. I don't know what works for everybody else, but that was my healing. And knowing that I could walk away, knowing that I've forgiven, of course there was still some hurt, but that forgiveness meant that I could open other doors mm. that I possibly found were restricting me, that were barriers. I found that I could talk to people differently. Mm. I felt I could share my story without always crying or and crying there's nothing wrong with crying because crying is also part of the healing process mm. but yeah that's healing means so many different things to people and i think we all heal in different ways it's like your death of a partner or of a mother you know time is the healer really mm. you know and you do it in different ways but for me, forgiveness is a big part of moving forward. Mm. Interesting. Just as you're reading, you're talking. I was remember reading once. Uh, you can't write a new chapter until you stop writing the last mm. one. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I've got goose pimples. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And sometimes we, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss anyone's pain or what they're feeling, but. I, I feel that so many of us, we hold on to so much that we're unable to move forward. You know, I tell you what, Simon, when I forgave that individual, doors opened, I could write again, I could meet people and not feel that I was hiding behind things. Mm. I didn't feel as heavy as I felt before. I was able to excel in certain things within work, within my relationship with my own daughter. But it took time, mm. you know, those things take time. Yeah. And I, I probably got to the stage of giving forgiveness because I felt myself feeling dark yeah. and feeling heavy. Yeah and feeling that maybe did I deserve all of that or maybe that's my fate. Mm. I was also hard. Mm. I was really hardened by the experiences that had shaped me. And that's fine, we can have experiences that shape us, but I go back to your first point. You said that I'm kind. That has been part of the healing mm. because I wasn't necessarily kind because I was angry. Mm. And some of the, and angry is also an emotion mm. that needs to come out and it's not wrong to be angry. It's wrong to be angry all the time mm. when it starts to affect 
the way you speak to your children, the way you speak to friends, the way you speak to people, you know, whether you're in a restaurant. Anger can turn into hate. And when you start to feel hate, when you start to feel dislike and utter disgust towards yourself, that's when the part in your brain starts to play havoc, havoc with itself. Mm-hmm. And as you were just talking, I was thinking about that heaviness in my experience is also connected to am I ready to let go of the shame for me mm-hmm. when, yeah it's like, okay yeah yeah, yeah and yeah, it's, it's, hadn't connected that before but yeah. really interesting as you're because shame is also powerful mm-hmm. I mean we hold on to that because nobody wants to feel embarrassed but actually there are so many people in this world who have gone through the same thing you've gone through if not worse and they're living yeah and I I think I got to that stage you know nine years on I want to be able to live and I couldn't do the work I do today and be there for the amount of people that I am there for if I didn't feel passion for the world I'm living in if I didn't want to live if I didn't want to survive if I didn't want better for the next person or the next generation Mm. yeah talk to me a bit about self-care feels like the perfect segue um Phil I often um I people will say that I'm busy and when I look at what you're doing something I I spend most of my life on the sofa I can't talk to you Simon I'm busy (laughs) I'm not going to talk about self-care I'm busy oh I'm not I'm not so good at it I I I've got better. Did I just cut you off? Nope. So that meant that I didn't hear the question. I'm looking forward (laughs) to the answer to whatever you thought I asked. How do I apply self-care in an ever-increasing, busy life and schedule that I have? Mm. Hmm. So I like to write. You know, I write for Diva Column... I have a book that I co-edited with uh, Ricky Beadle, Blair, and John Russell Gordon. Uh, I I have moments of silence. Mm. I love reading Audre Lorde. I've got bell hooks on replay as an audio book. I love also looking back at some of the things that I wrote many years ago about UK Black Pride and where it would get to. But I think how I apply self-care is switching off sometimes. And I don't get to do it enough. Um, Like I don't sleep enough. And I say to people, to apply self-care, you need to sleep. And you need to allow your body to heal and recuperate and build up. So I'm learning to sleep a bit more. That means not picking up the phone at two o'clock to see who's just tweeted something. So I turn notifications off. I know it sounds small and little, but my phone, I mean, I've not even brought my phone in here. And I was earlier on thinking, should I bring my phone in here? But actually just us talking like this, Mm. this is also Mm self-care. Being able to share with somebody things that happened in the past that you're now at a stage of growth that you can talk about without completely crumbling, Mm. it's self-care. Yeah, and always getting to see people that I don't see, like yourself and Mm. us taking selfies. (laughs) So, you know, there's lots of things that we can do as self-care, but there's something that I love doing the most, and it's a a sister circle, you know, being around a group of women who have that lived experience, that shared commonality, that understanding of the various struggles that we face in, in work, but being in the space, not just talking about those challenges, but what's making us happy, you know, talking about our girlfriends, our partners, you know, what we want to do, where, which cruise we want to go on, you know, and having moments of nobody's allowed to say anything negative for the next 20 minutes. 
but we've all got a subject matter to chime in on that self-care being amongst people who matter who yeah mm. and sitting in front of the tv letting it watch you with no bra on and eating popcorn that was a bit too much information so <laughs> might have to cut that out but yeah that's self-care for me it's yeah. a good tip it's a good tip um and just thinking you talked about audrey lord you've talked about you know other inspirational people um what's some of the best advice you've ever been given the moment someone whispered something in your ear and you're like okay i i hear that there's a woman called valerie mason john and oh, she's just she's just amazing she's She's everything. She's a writer. She has like a seven-step program. Um, she's written books. And we were, we were at an event and she said, you know, I've watched you for a number of years now. And she goes, I just want to let you know that I think that you are amazing. <gasps> and you, you listen and you embrace that. And I, I heard it so loud and so clear. And like I said, people don't shouldn't need validation, but for that split second, she made me realize that as a black woman and another black woman to another black woman that you're amazing and you don't need anybody to tell you anything else. And when she said, you're amazing, I turned around and I said, I am so honored and humbled that you would say this. She goes, yeah, just don't let anyone dim your lights. And from then, I don't allow people to dim my light. Although I'm kind, I'm also quite assertive in my approach that my space is my space. I will occupy what I need to occupy. I will call out racism, any form of discrimination. I'm not gonna shout at you, I'm not gonna hurt you, but I'm gonna let you know what you're doing is wrong. I'm gonna create space for other people. And even those that don't like what I'm doing, I can't focus on that too much. Mm. Because as I said, it's not about just me in the here and now, it's about the next generation. Mm. So um, my last question, uh, I think uh, it feels like we're heading towards that. Um, if you were to look two, three, mm. five years from now and, and thought about um, well-being, you know, what would you what would your hope for different communities be? What's you know, if you obviously utopia, we're not gonna get there in five years, but if we were walking in the fields towards utopia, what would be happening around us? What would be changing? I wanna know how you would answer that question, Simon. Hmm, didn't prep for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I that's I mean, it's really interesting. Of course I you know, I want world peace, I want access to justice i want nobody to have to struggle and be alone mm. but i always like to know how somebody would answer the that sort of question that they would ask me mm. what would you want to see in the next five years as as somebody who is the ceo mm. of the organization an organization which supports people what do you want to see in the next five years so many things, so many things. But I think at the heart, I would like us as individuals, the things which are in our control and power to take a bit more time, mm. be a bit kinder to each other, um, recognize that rights are not a zero sum game and that there's space for all of us to mm. be amazing. Um, I'd like good education, yeah, fair pay, uh, access to quality mental health services, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people to feel as though um, they've always got somebody on their side. So similar to you, uh, you know, in all of those things. But I think, I guess where, where I have learned a lot since being at MHFA England is we have more power in ourselves to make so many of those things a bit truer than they currently are. And yeah. it's too easy to look 
to government. Yeah, we know that government is not going to do many of the things right now or a different government. Who knows? Mm -hmm. It's not a party political statement. It's just yeah, a fact. There will never be enough money. There will never be the ability to do everything. But actually, our ability to, uh, to amplify people's voices, to say you're valid, mm -hmm. yeah, our ability to ask someone if they're okay and put an arm around them figuratively or otherwise, yeah. it's free. It just requires us to put our phones in the room next door sometimes yeah. uh, and look a bit more at what's going around us. I love that answer. I mean, I love that. And I think if, and it's not a utopia, I think some of the services that are out there, I want power dynamics of privilege, those with influence, those who are able to access things to change. Mm. Because if that's not balanced, we're always going to be in the same situation where the scales are going to be unbalanced. Yeah. yeah, You know, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and those who are getting poorer will undoubtedly be hit by poor and ill mental health. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm not saying that those who are rich that are not because they could be going through a number of things, but just by virtue of being born into poverty mm -hmm. will lead you into some very dark places and yeah. soul destroying places yeah. so yeah shifting power dynamics absolutely and um ranch dr ranch who you will know talked about a kind set yeah and if it's a summer mm. it wouldn't it be great if we moved to a world that was a kind set and you know all of us were 10 percent kinder absolutely the difference that would make in yeah. all sorts of areas even just saying hello to somebody smiling as you just walk down the street at somebody you know not the wolf whistle why aren't you smiling girl but just somebody walks past you and you just smile and you nod or say thank you to the bus driver when they let you off yeah help yeah. somebody get up the stairs who's got a buggy being kind costs nothing yeah. stopping just to acknowledge that maybe the world that you're navigating and living in may feel hard but there's also somebody who may be dealing with that tenfold and just wants you to say hello to them yeah and i have to say get rid of prejudice and stigma full stop on absolutely. all sorts of issues <laughs> uh absolutely. yeah just yeah that that has to be uh, a, a particular mission and we didn't talk about health um in terms of, you know, you've just mentioned stigma, but HIV, AIDS, you know, thalassemia, sickle cell, all of these things which affect different communities in different ways, yeah. that has a, such an impact on your mental health and well-being. Yeah, yeah. That and helps. also how you deal with healing, because healing for somebody would be very different yeah. based on, you know, their health-related issues. Yeah. Okay, so mm. going to say thank you very oh, much, but you. I can't uh, end without saying um, how brilliant I think you are and how the light that you shine on other people and the space you create for other people um, is amazing and you deserve all the light that's shone um, okay. on you. Um, so, yeah, very proud to know you and the work that you're doing is fab and you're brilliant. Thank you, and so are you. It's just a mirror refraction, right? When you see something great in somebody else, it's part of what you see in yourself. So thank you. Time for a hug. Oh, yeah, I need one. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you make me cry. So that's the end of series one of Just About Coping, and what a brilliant guest to finish uh, the series on. I've certainly left feeling uh, nourished and inspired from my conversation with Phil and I hope you have too. Please do leave us a review if you haven't already. We're going to take some time out now to think about what we've learnt, to absorb the feedback. So if you've got ideas about what the future might look like, please do let us know and please do use the hashtag JAC podcast. Thanks very much for listening over the first series of Just About Coping. It's been great to have you with us. And until next time, I'm Simon Blake and thanks for coping with us. So... 
just, I forgot to ask you, um, Grand Marshal, World Pride, as if that's not good enough. I then see on Facebook that you met and were hugged by Whoopi Goldberg. Yes! Tell me, tell me. Oh, Whoopi Goldberg is everything. Absolutely everything. You know, like for years and years, you watch her on TV, Sister Act, The Colour Purple, and she calls you on stage and she gets your name right. <laughs> she says it perfectly. And she um, she talks about UK Black Pride and the movement that has been created. And then she goes into something else. And she gave me the biggest hug and said, well done for everything you're doing. I said, I love you, Whoopi. That's the only thing I could say to her. I said, I love you, Whoopi. And then we walked off the stage together and she held my hand as she was coming down the stairs. And she said, oh, I'm getting on a bit now. And I said, I love you, Whoopi. I literally couldn't say anything more. I said, I'd love to get a picture with you and sit and talk. And she goes, please take a picture and it'll be great to stay in contact with you. So I feel like she is, yeah... I was waiting for her to say that, you know, we can get married or something. I don't care about the age difference, but she is... Not that I'm outing her. Oh, my gosh. We'll we'll cut that It's bit. on wiki. Yeah. Oh, oh is it? <laughs> but she's amazing. Oh. She's so down to earth. She's funny. She's hilarious. She's real. She's genuine. There's She's, she's not got any airs and graces about her. Yeah. Still my beating heart. That's all yeah. I can say. I remember being given her book when I left Wales, so in 1997 or 98, and just reading it, and I fell in love. I mm. fell in love. I questioned my sexuality. Oh, really? I, I properly fell in love. Oh, well, she's she is... Have you washed? saying she's everything, but... Have you washed since the hug? Do you still well, have the clothes? I think, I think the... I've got the dress. I'm not sure if I've washed it. You know, when you want to get someone to sign your skin because she's amazing. I mean, I have to admit, I must say I met also some other amazing people. I was with Laverne Cox, um, India Moore, Dominique Jackson, <laughs> and I was interviewed on um, what was the equivalent of the BBC um, by Billy Porter. So, you know... The Stonewall uprising, the celebration of World Pride was really a tale to tell the grandkids. Mm. Yeah. Well, and and uh, testament to the amazing work that you've done here. But watching you on that car with your fan going down the street was something else. But <laughs> watching you being hugged by Whoopi, even something else. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 